Hey, this is Lexi. This is Ari. And you're listening to Hotel Earth. Hello, residents, and welcome back to another episode of Hotel Earth. I am one of your hosts, Ariana Halvai, and I am joined today by my co-host, Lexi Moorhead. Say hi, Lexi. Hello. But listeners, please don't forget to like, follow, subscribe, review, rate, all the things. It means a lot to us, and it really helps this podcast get found. So please do that right now. Pause the podcast and go do that if you haven't already. Lexi, I have a random question for you. Tell me, my dear. What issue will you always speak your mind about? Oh, golly. That might be the hardest question you've asked me. Like, ever. It's a tough one. I mean, I get, it would be a cop-out to say, like, environmental things. Let's go ahead and put the rule not environmental because we have this podcast and everyone here pretty much knows that we want to talk about it all the time. Exactly. So what non-environmental topics will you always speak your mind about, Lex? That's fair. Oh, but you know what? I think the one thing I like consistently cannot shut the fuck up about is homelessness. And <laughs> um, nothing infuriates me more than when people will equate homelessness to crime. Or they'll like insinuate that because a place has a lot of poverty or people that are without home, that somehow that place is dangerous. I will never not speak my mind about um, that. Is this is this inspired by your recent move to San Francisco, a.k.a. one of the homeless capitals of the world? It actually started before I moved to San Francisco, but it definitely, I mean, here it comes up a lot. A lot of a lot of the time when I tell people that I've moved to California, the first question is where? And then once I say San Francisco, the next question is like, the housing crisis. Yeah, like, well, they, they like it immediately go straight to like fear for your safety. And then I typically go down the, the rabbit hole of poverty does not equate to crime. Homelessness does not equate to crime. And just because you have crime doesn't mean that it's violent crime. And San Francisco is not a place of violent crime. It's a place of crime of opportunity and so on and so forth. So that's definitely an issue that I will not pass up the opportunity to have a conversation about because I do think okay. a lot of people have misconceptions about it. All right. I respect that. I respect Thank you. that a lot. Thank you. And, you know, trying to do a Lexi segue into into what you just said into today's topic. I think... <laughs> I'm not as quick as she is with these. We should speak our mind about oil war crimes, people. We, we should speak our mind. Well, you know, and we all we should never we should never pass up an opportunity to note the strange correlations between oil exploration and war crimes. The weird uh, connection between oil and money, oil and poverty, and somehow oil and violence. There is a comparison we could make. 
there is a there is a lot of parallels, but are they really parallels or are they interconnected? I don't know. There's a lot of a lot of themes here that require further explanation and exploration and all the things. So let's take a journey across the Atlantic, across the Sahara, all the way to a very complex country, countries now, that we all know as Sudan and South Sudan. It's about to get heavy, guys. Buckle in. With decades of civil unrest since the military-led overthrow of former Prime Minister Sadiq al-Mahdi, in 1989 by Omar al-Bashir, this area of the world has been the scene of some seriously unfortunate events. Under al-Bashir's leadership, political parties were suspended and instead a national-level Islamic legal code was introduced. And soon followed purges and executions in the upper ranks of the army. The banning of the associations political parties and independent newspapers and the imprisonment of leading political figures and journalists. Always a good sign of a healthy functioning government, right, Lex? Good, healthy government? No, but what you could hope for in a situation like this is that there's like potential for something better, maybe? Did that happen? I I certainly wish it did. But it's no shock that instead civil war broke out and led to a division of the country into many states, which at one point was 26 different states. And as we know, with divided territory comes independent governments who all want a piece of the power pie. Now, this tends to lead to military-occupied regions. Fun. But for now, though, it's best if we just tell you that Sudan has since been split into two countries, Sudan and South Sudan. We won't go into the long history of Sudan's slash South Sudan's political conflict because believe us, that would take a few hours and I know no one listening wants to spend that much time listening to that kind of shit. But instead, I'll highlight the fact that this region has always sat rather comfortably on a fat reserve of oil. And I mean really fucking fat. Five billion barrels combined worth. Yeah. So naturally... The Sudans have a lot of, you could say, visitors. And no, I'm not talking about the kind that like to take pictures of the monuments and try to enrich themselves with culture, try the local food, evaluate the flair. No, people who want a piece of that power pie too. Power pie sounds like a WWE move, so you know it's violent. And I coined it myself, you're welcome. Which brings us to the case we'd like to cover today. As Ari has beautifully illustrated for us so far, well, actually not, I'm gonna say beautifully in your description, but um, as as we can all probably agree, this is not a beautiful situation. No. So this, this is kind of where we've gotten to this point. The former CEO and the former chairman of Swedish company London Oil have been charged with aiding and abetting serious violations of international law in Sudan, and technically, I guess, South Sudan because of the secession. Mm-hmm. But the indicted executives are Ian London and former CEO Alex Sch- Schneider. 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 Yeah, that's like you're the right. pretzel. You're right. You're right. Why did I have to overcomplicate it? Anyways. The crimes allegedly took place in Sudan between 1999 and 2003, and this investigation has spanned the last two decades. No surprise here, but the two men obviously deny the charges. Really? 
Yeah, I know. Kind of surprising. No one ever wants to... Never mind. So the oil executives <laughs> and war crimes. You know, it's like peanut butter and jelly, like car body shops and ripoffs, like Ari <laughs> and Italian men. They are inseparable couples. That is rich. That's rich. Thank you. Thank you for that. I'm sure our listeners really needed that extra detail. I had to get it off my chest. So to figure <laughs> out how we got here, let's wind it back. All right. What the hell did these two allegedly do to end up in this position exactly? Oil. They got in bed really? with oil. It's always oil. Ladies, watch out. Watch <laughs> your backs. What's your biggest competition? No, it's not the hot 25-year-old Pilates instructor. It's oil. It's oil. Wow. <laughs> yeah, um, it absolutely is. And specifically, there are the oil fields in what is now South Sudan. And I know that we said we're not going to get into the conflict, and I promise we're not going to get into necessarily the causes on the, of the conflict, but we do have to talk a little bit about the history in order for all of this to mm -hmm. make sense because when you read that two oil executives are being accused of war crimes it's almost like how the how how did yeah. they they get involved and this is how so we're going to talk conflict power pie and geography for a moment i kind of want pie now i know honestly is that a bad time last when we're talking about war crimes and i'm a hungry. little bit all right sorry continue yeah my are bad i've become desensitized like the rest of america and this is why we have environmental crises and humanitarian crises anyways ignoring that rabbit hole since sudan gained its independence in 1956 it has had two civil wars the second civil war is the one that is of particular focus to the allegations and <laughs> that civil war ended air quotes in 2005 I'm going to say right now that it has not been totally squashed. But again, that's not what today's episode is about. So moving along. The end of this second civil war led to the Comprehensive Peace Agreement, a.k.a. the CPA. No, not the one that everyone is certified in. And between, <laughs> between the government in Sudan and the rebel groups that were leading the secession in South Sudan, that's kind of how the agreement was forged. And Ari, remind us again about how the little thing, about the little thing in Sudan that it's rich in. Could it be oil? You are correct, Shouty. Any guesses what the CPA established guidelines for? Peace, perhaps. Do you want to try again? Could it have anything to do with providing aid to the people impacted by the war? Okay, let's, a little less humanitarian one more time. Got it, got it, got it. The most important thing to cover right after getting out of decades-long conflict is oil revenue sharing. Oh, there we go. See, that was that so hard. Third time's a charm. Yeah, so the CPA set up guidelines for that as well as a way for South Sudan to actually vote on whether or not it would like to become independent from Sudan. No spoiler, but obviously that, that vote did take place and South Sudan became its own independent nation in 2011. This secession clarifies a few things. First, the allegations against the oil executives have to do with oil fields that are in South Sudan, but at the time of the alleged crimes, the fields would have been a part of Sudan. Okay, so that's item number one. Two, South Sudan, the region our focus is being held on, has 75% of Sudan's known 
oil reserve fields. So that changes the game a bit, doesn't it? It does. When Ari said five billion earlier, she meant 1.5 in Sudan and how many in South Sudan? Well, if you know math, what's that? Three and a half? That's why I had to ask you, because if there's one thing Lexi doesn't do, it's add or subtract. She she would do five minus 1.5 and come out with like seven. I absolutely would. So the, the third has to do with when the crimes allegedly occurred. Ari, can you remind us of the years again? That would be the year of my sister's birth, 1999, all the way to 2003. Exactly. Happy belated birthday, Roshan. So in the heat of the conflict between the Southern rebel groups and the Sudanese government, that is when this all took place. And where are the oil fields in question? South Sudan. Right. Last clarifier to drive home why these two are being singled out. And by two, I mean not the countries. I mean the oil executives. Those two Swedes that are fucking some shit up. Yeah. Or have fucked some Alleg- shit up. We'll allegedly say. fucked some shit up. They're never yep. innocent. Beginning in the mid-80s, most oil producers like Chevron pulled out of Sudan because of the conflicts that were happening. And because these conflicts were centering around oil fields. A lot of people wanted to control the oil fields because they can make a lot of money off of the oil produced. No shit. There's the power pie. This danger, though, led to, like, lots of of countries imposing sanctions i'm sorry but you said like and then you reset countries and it like made me laugh so hard i'm so sorry all right well i'm gonna we add a little bleep there oops please continue so this danger led to many countries imposing sanctions barring their companies from even operating in sudan like the un straight up was like no We should not be doing stuff there. It's dangerous. It is fueling the fire that is this conflict, and it is resulting in a humanitarian crisis. Other than the London group, do we know other any other oil or oil related companies that did decide to stay? Um, You know, it was actually really hard to find a lot of this information. Um, A lot of what I'm talking about right now when it comes to the sanctions actually was from a PBS article I found that Mm. hadn't been updated in probably the last like 10 years. But the reason I could find the information was because it hadn't been updated. So I don't know. I do know that Chevron was one of the um, companies that pulled out of Sudan because of the conflict. But aside from the company in question, I don't have any others that I'm aware of. Do you think that they pull out because it makes it harder to access the oil? Or do you think they pull out because they don't want to fuel more conflict? I think they pull out because they know they're going to get in trouble with other nations and people. I think it's more of an, I I would honestly say it is my own personal view. I don't have any facts to support this other than my own opinions. And opinions are like assholes. Everybody's got them. So take it with a grain of salt. I think they pull out because of optics and not because they actually want anything like productive out of it. Interesting. Anyway, sorry, we digress, my bad. But anyways, the group leading the secession and war from the South declared oil installations, quote, legitimate military targets. Just also to further paint this picture of why different countries were literally like, we need to get out. They were saying we need to get out because the people that were fueling the conflict were saying that they were targeting these 
these oil installations, these oil fields. And the oil fields were not just in the middle of nowhere. They were in the they were in areas surrounded by civilians, which is further how this issue comes about. So anyways, they also said that the oil revenues were supported by the government's referring to Sudan human rights abuses. So you've got one side saying that the oil fields are a military target and they are accusing the other side of it fueling that target and committing human rights abuses. They also claimed that the government displaced thousands of civilians living near the oil fields. Now, in come the charges against the two men in question. The charges for complicity in war crimes carried out by the Sudanese army and allied militia in southern Sudan from 1999 to 2003. That is some quite a sticky situation that these two men found themselves in. I don't even know if you can call it sticky. Also, that's that's what he said. Question mark. Oh, my God. I don't know if you can even necessarily call it sticky. Like this wasn't accidental. You can't say like the sanctions came into place in the mid 80s and we just accidentally stuck around for another, what, 10 years? I meant sticky in a very facetious way. Uh, But yeah. That sometimes was supposed to be incredibly I, facetious. Sometimes I miss conversational cues. Very obviously, <laughs> this is intentional. <laughs> I mean, these guys are smart businessmen. Like they, they were very intentional with every with every move that they were doing. And I think that they just didn't think that either they would get caught or get caught in a way that would cause a public breach. If that makes sense, I think it does. Well, I'm done with my history lesson for you all, and we're going to come back to present time. So the Swedish prosecutors say that the two men asked Sedan's government at the time, you know, to secure a potential oil field in what is now South Sudan. The allegations include that the two men knew that this would mean seizing the area by force and thus makes them complicit in war crimes. If you're left wondering if Sudan acted on this urge, they most certainly did. According to the prosecutors, quote, what constitutes complicity in a criminal sense is that they made these demands despite understanding or in any case being indifferent to the military and the militia carrying out the war in any way that was forbidden according to international humanitarian law, end quote. So what do you think about the case, Lex? So I haven't read the indictment and I don't know what kind of evidence they actually have to support these allegations. And I didn't include this in today's conversation, but I do think it's interesting that the company sold itself in 03, which is partly why the um, years that they're being accused of are only from 99 to 03. But I do think that it's about damn time that companies are held responsible for the impacts that they have on communities. Mm -hmm. And it's not just war crimes. Like, I think this is a really drastic example of what companies do when they exploit resources, when they exploit people. There are other actors that have not necessarily committed war crimes, but definitely commit environmental, like, catastrophes for communities. Or or cause, um, like, anti-ethical treatment of humans or responsible for the anti-ethical treatment of other people or yeah. other groups. Yeah, I think that this case is just one of like a thousand examples 
of a much bigger issue at hand. And obviously, obviously, like, this is not the first time we've seen oil oil pursuits be very conveniently positioned in the same places as war, violence, and as I said, any other anti-ethical treatment of humans in the environment. Um, It seems as though wherever you look, Iraq, South Sudan, Syria, Ukraine, etc., these parts of the world seem to be in a constant, constant state of political unrest, like consistent war, violent outbreaks, and these are not independent events. Like maybe the way media portrays things or the way it's reported on is, oh, you know, it's a it's where it's more about a, a cultural unrest or it's about a civil unrest or it's about um you know something something along those lines and this is like this is certainly a facade maybe those things can encourage it to lean a certain way or encourage it to perpetuate it to make it worse but these areas are energy hotspots and it is no coincidence that you also find conflict violent conflict in these areas as well so as an example according to swiss info the only other such case so far is one against cement firm Lafarge, now part of the Swiss Wholesome Group, which is being sued in France for crimes against humanity, for keeping a factory running in Syria during the Civil War and allegedly making payments to jihadist groups, including Islamic State. I actually found another example in addition to this about um, oil exploration in Ecuador, and yeah. it also it it also causing severe uh, civil and um, civil unrest, but also the displacement of many of of thousands of uh, impoverished people and things like it's just this is there's so many examples, so many that we don't even know about as well. I mean, it's very easy when you're a multi billion dollar corporation to sweep some of this shit under the rug. Like there are so many examples of this that we can talk about, but. I really do think that this begs the question, what are we, I guess when I say we, I mean as a collective, like the human race, willing to do for oil? And is there anything we can really do about it? I don't know if it's just oil either. Like there's constantly the whole, there's constantly violent turmoil over oil, sure. But what if it goes beyond oil? What if it's energy? Like, I think that a lot of us think that renewables are going to save us from this type of conflict. And I wonder if, like, how how do we actually know that the demand and bloodness won't be the same for renewables? Well, you know, when we've we've talked, when we talked about energy, right, we talked about how renewables give independence in a way that oil natural gas and coal don't right like when you have a way to generate it i mean basically yeah but think about source, i think we what right we, what we failed to discuss in those series is the fact that ideally speaking a, a dependence on renewable energy would result in an independence from other countries but i don't think i think that's extremely wishful thinking like there are places in the world where renewables are more plentiful or accessible than others Solar is not super accessible everywhere, but it's one of the cheapest to produce. Do you see what I'm saying? Geothermal is not accessible everywhere. Sure. 
but I feel like it's it's the like it's the conglomerate of being able to put it together whereas like oil doesn't exist everywhere there's a reason why it's a power right. pie and I, because there is only so much of it to be cut and go around but I I do see your point because there's going to be places that aren't capable of potentially exactly like, getting to that and point as quickly I think that what we need to I think what what I'm challenging here is that it's not like government is controlling oil production. Private companies are. And pri- those same private companies are also the ones who are extremely invested in the renewable energy explorations as well. Like it's like it's not like the US is controlling the production of its solar and hydro. Like private companies are involved in that and private companies are going to be able to hold control and power over that. So how how even when we even if we shift to renewables does that mean all the all the conflict goes away i don't know I, I, it could but i just think we need to be smart about it like we can, i don't think it's necessarily smart to assume that the second we start shifting which i mean we have started shifting but once we start making bigger strides and bigger shifts away from renewables that all this conflict's going to go away cuz i mean at the end of the day a lot of the same companies that are responsible or that are in, involved in fossil fuel exploration are also the ones who are heavily investing in renewables too because it's not about oil it's about energy it's about because energy production is the basis of human life right now um and whoever is able to control it is is extremely powerful so I think it is, I think at the end of the day, it does go down to being about energy itself. Yes, I see how oil can cause more issues because it's only available in certain areas. Those areas have had a long history of political and civil conflict and unrest. But I don't know. I think it's a, I think it's a smart question to ask. Whoever has control of the major, major energy sources has a shit ton of power and is probably willing to do anything to keep a hold of it. So... Maybe this means, as I said, that the renewables that are by nature more difficult to access and potentially more at risk could potentially be more at risk for being involved with turmoil and violence, whether that be geographically seasonally difficult to access, whatever. But I do think I do think it could I do think it's something to explore and something to consider. What do you think? Well, I think. I think a couple of things. I think this particular, give me a moment to fully go around my hamster wheel of a circle. When we're talking about the two oil executives in this particular case, um, Egbert Wesselink, a spokesperson for PAX, which is a non-governmental organization, I believe in the Netherlands. It's a huge group. Anyways, he, he has this quote where he said, This is a great victory for justice and a historic achievement. This is the first time since Nuremberg that a listed company will have accounted in court for war crimes. And he went on to also say, many corporations look at human rights as a source of risk that must be managed instead of a norm that must be upheld. And I think what you're talking about, Ari, when when you're talking about energy, and that energy's got this nexus with conflict. Um, I think that this is an example of how we have to shift how companies 
view their profit and their production versus human rights and the accountability like we talked we I mean we just talked about this last week the accountability for businesses has to come from somewhere and it's I think it's good to see it starting here um I fully realize that there will be a transition period where even if six or seven countries completely are able to shift to renewables we know for a fact it's not possible for everywhere to have it happen at once. Like it's going to be a gradual transition, but it's instances like this where companies are held accountable for their actions that give me hope that we will not have this, this energy conflict nexus that we have seemingly been looped into yeah, since I mean, the beginning I'd of really time. Yeah, I mean, I really like to believe that, but as I... As I touched on before, I do think a lot of stuff ends up not getting swept under the rug and no one knows about it because of how much money is involved and and how much, I mean, hush money is so real. So yeah, no, I do think that it's, it's great. It's a great stride to finally get some reporting on these things, hold these, um, hold these people that are part of these corporations accountable. And as we talked about last week, holding government accountable um but yeah i've i ha i did do a little bit of research which um i won't quite share yet because i'm not sure how i feel about it and i i want to feel super educated on it before we talk about it here on the pod but um talking about how just because we make a switch to renewables doesn't necessarily mean that uh the, the violence or the 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 control game stops because a lot of it is privately explored and controlled um which is basically the same thing we're kind of seeing with with oil companies now i do think there are some elements that are different that make a big difference so we'll just have to see um and there's there's probably a lot a lot of really intelligent ways to approach energy and energy sources to be as conflict-free as possible. Um, I just don't know yeah. if our modern system knows how to adapt to it, <laughs> to be honest. The quote you said, many corporations look at human rights as a source of risk that must be managed instead of a norm that must be upheld. I just think that's a really powerful quote. And that goes, it applies for a lot of a lot of uh, energy-related and political-related conflicts. So I don't necessarily think that I'm an overly optimistic person, but I do think that my view on life is like the cup half full perspective more often than not. Look, I'm not trying to sound Debbie Downer. I'm just trying to be realistic. I, I don't, I don't, well, it's like, I don't know if it's necessarily Debbie Downer or if it is realistic. Like what is realistic is that you and I have... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you and I in the last, let's just say six years, have seen personally um, an increase in accountability, an increase in the movement in general for people to be more humanitarian. And we've also seen more examples of people actually, not even people, like entities, businesses being held accountable, governments being held accountable. I don't think it would be appropriate to say that the realistic perspective is that this inappropriate 
opportunistic, detrimental behavior is going to be able to continue. I think we are really at a point where you cannot hide behind the curtain of ambiguity. You can't hide behind, oh, we didn't know. Like the world has shifted to a point where the information is at our fingertips and the accountability is is not is not uh, impossible to be able to like say it should go to this person. Where I think it's going to become more difficult is, you know, with technology comes the ability of people being able to maybe hide some of their things a bit better. But I, I just I will rest my case that I, I think the the tides are turning in favor of people and not in favor of corporations. Like there's a lot of there's too there's too many eyes on on people and corporations for it to not go that way. I think. Okay. We're gonna I, see though. We're gonna see. I definitely do. I mean, as you said, I we both noticed a shift, right? And I'm not. I I totally agree with everything you just said. I just don't think that it's like oh just because we switch energy source means that all this conflict like immediately dissipates like i just don't think it's going to work like that and i don't and i don't think even though there's more accountability happening and there's more um responsibility being taken whether it's forced or not um i still think we have quite a bit of transitioning to go through before we get to a point where if it ever happens energy becomes a conflict-free zone yeah well i mean like I said, it even with the transition started, it's not going to happen overnight. There will continue to be probably decades where you're going to have conflict around energy because the infrastructure is just not there yet. Yeah. But I am hopeful, maybe. Maybe it's naive hope, but I am I'm hopeful, hopeful that in maybe not in our generation, but in the next generation or two, it will come a time where humans don't fight over energy you know what we are going to fight over we're going to fight over water oh my god it's already happening that one you and i can rest our heads knowing will absolutely be a conflict um is a conflict it, it is a conflict and oh god that's a rabbit hole that we should not go down at this moment in time on this episode but i think water could even become you know what? Not going to say it. Next, chow rabbit hole. We're walking right along. But guys, this was a pretty heavy discussion today. So do let us know what you think. As I said at the beginning, please like, rate, review, follow, subscribe, all the things, but also feel free to reach out to us. We'd love your feedback, especially on this topic. Um, and you can find us on Instagram at Hotel Earth Podcast. You can find us um, on TikTok at Hotel Earth Pod. We have a link tree in our Instagram bio. And also email us. That's where another mode of communication that we like to receive. That's hotelerthpodcast at gmail.com. So yeah, people, let us know. Let us know your thoughts on this. What do you think about what do you think about the energy crisis in general? And do you think conflict is gonna dissipate once we make the full transition to renewables? Or do you think we've got a lot more work to do before that actually happens? Let us know. Yes, do let us know. But I think that's all I've got for today. So I'm going to sign off and say 
Ciao for now. We'll see you next week. Hasta la pizza. Bye, bitches. Bye, bitches. Bye, bitches.